Hello, horse fans, and hello, mystery fans, and welcome to a podcast that combines both of your interests into one podcast we like to call Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. And I'm Lisa Williamson. I'm your humble co-host of this podcast. Lisa Williamson is a self-declared horse expert. Mm, not really. <laughs> she is a husband-declared horse expert. And dear, yes. as you remember last episode... Oh yeah, we, we introduced a new a new ep- new part of the show that I like to call. That I don't know if I called it horse bits. Yeah, you did. But I like that that's the name of it. So today, I don't want you to go too much into detail because it's a pretty big topic. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the horse's foot. Oh, the horse's foot. Okay. Yeah, the horse's foot is kind of interesting because I always kind of pictured it as like a bowling ball or a piece of cement. You know, it's this kind of hard thing mm-hmm. at the bottom of their leg. Yeah. But there's a lot of uh, different adaptations that make it quite light. Uh, actually, the whole horse's leg from the knee and the hock down has no fat, no muscle. It's just literally skin and bones, tendons, ligaments. And so, yeah, that's one thing that makes the lower leg lighter. The main bone inside the foot proper, which is called the pedal bone or also known as the coffin bone, it's full of holes, which also makes it very light. And so if you consider like a horse maybe running at, let's say, 35 miles an hour, in order for the horse to run at 35 miles an hour, its leg has to accelerate past the body at twice that speed. So if the horse is traveling at 35 miles an hour, then the leg is actually going forward at 70 miles an hour and it hits the ground at 70 miles an hour. It's kind of decelerating, but it hits the ground at 70 miles an hour and then the body travels forward over top of that and then the cycle continues in that next gate or in the next step of the gate. But um, yeah, so having a very light leg is, or light leg, light foot in particular is very important uh, for that process to to occur. But obviously the horse weighs, the average horse weighs about a thousand pounds, 1200 pounds. Um, the foot is the thing that bears most of the weight as well. So we have the hoof wall on the outside, which again, I mentioned like the bowling ball or the piece of concrete. So that's where the, the strength comes from. And that's the thing that basically bears a lot of the weight. And yeah, I think the... Uh, I used to know this, pounds of pressure per square inch, but it was like, I think, 7,200 pounds of pressure per square inch that the hoof wall can bear. And you think, why is that? Is that overkill? But it's, you know, the horse standing still might be 1,000 pounds or 1,200 pounds. But as soon as you add speed, then that increases, yeah, the the force that is needed. And especially if the horse is jumping and jumping downhill, again, we have an increase of force. So, yeah, the, the foot has to be able to with, withstand or, you know, bear the weight that's coming, all that force that's coming into it. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting that way. Nice. Mm-hmm. You left out part of its function, but I think that's great that you concentrated on one part of the horse's foot. Well, you told me to keep it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. Yeah. That's great. We can like, we always come around to it again. Yeah. That was enjoyable. Thank you, dear. You're welcome. Very informative about mm-hmm. the horse's foot. Mm-hmm. All right. So... As we were talking about at the beginning of the show, it's this is Horse Mysteries. Mm-hmm. So today we have a mystery. I assume we have a mystery. Yeah, otherwise, sort of a mystery. Otherwise, we're going to be sitting around here for a while. <laughs> What's today's episode called? It is called Beat the System. Beat the System. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you look very pleased with I yourself. You're I like the pleased. cat who got the cream here. 
which is great. So, all right. Well, let's hear about the, uh, I was going to say hear about the cat who got the cream. Let's hear about beating the system. Okay. Or is it beat the system or beating? Beat, beat the system. Beat the I, system. I, it could be beating the system. I don't know. Whatever. You can decide at the end. <laughs> When does this take place? Um, it happened on the evening of November 6, 2001. And where did it take place? Happy Valley Racecourse, which is in Hong Kong. Okay. It was the final race of the evening at Happy Valley Racecourse. And in the final race, the Bay Gelding Bobo Duck passed the pace setter, mascot treasure, to finish in front. And he, you know, the third place horse was a horse called Frat Rat. So treasure duck, did you say? Mm, it was well, no, Bobo duck first. <laughs> oh, Bobo duck, sorry, okay. Mascot treasure second. Okay. Frat rat third. All right. Okay, so that was the finish. I'm sorry, I got a bit, bit, bit mixed up there. Mm -hmm. So this particular race was the last leg of the Hong Kong Jockey Club's Triple Trio. So that's where basically punters bent, bet on the top three horses in three different races. And it's like a trifecta of trifectas. So a trifecta is basically where you guess who's going to be for second, third. Okay. Right? So not just who's going to win, but for second, third. So there are more than 10 million combinations possible. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the pot, which rolls over each time it's not one, kind of like Lotto Max or whatever, yeah. had gone unclaimed six times in a row. So that night, a million people had bet. So there was a pot of 118 million, that's in Hong Kong dollars. Yeah. So about the same as 13 million US. Okay. Okay. So this combination of horses resulted in not just a win, but obviously a very big win for someone, but the ticket was never presented and the money was never claimed. Huh. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of public interest surrounding the big win. Weeks passed by, and one theory was floated that the holder of the winning ticket had watched the race and immediately died of shock. <laughs> so the racing columnist for the South China Morning Post later wrote that the ghost of the unclaimed 118 million triple trio is still banging around like an unwanted poltergeist. So Hong Kong Jockey Club's head of betting, Henry Chan, pointed out there is no way to determine who the winning ticket holder was. And then Hong Kong Jockey Club policy in the case of unclaimed tickets was that the money would go to their charitable trust if it remained unclaimed after 60 days. Hmm. So Chan stated that although this is bad luck for one winner, it means there will be lots of winners through the charities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think what we need to do is go and find out a little bit more about Hong Kong Jockey Club. All right, let's go. Let's go. We'll go way back in time. All right. 1839. So 1839, part of the Opium War, the British invaded China and occupied Hong Kong, which at that time had a population of 7,000. Okay. So very, very small. Mm. Um, and so Hong Kong was then ceded to uh, the UK in 1841, just before the signing of the Treaty of Nanking, which ended the first Opium War. All right. So as often happens when there's a war and you know the British win, then all of a sudden you get a lot of British people showing up. So <laughs> that is what happened. So, and as a means of keeping the new British inhabitants in the area entertained and occupied, the only flat piece of land in Hong Kong or on Hong Kong Island was claimed by the British. 
So the locals were forbidden from using this former swampland for rice production, and the fields became the site of the new Happy Valley Racecourse, which opened in 1846. That made it the first racetrack hmm. in Hong Kong. All right. Who needs food? Who needs food? They can call it subjectively Happy Valley mm-hmm. Racecourse. Yeah. Okay, so Hong Kong Jockey Club was later established in 1884, which made makes it one of the oldest institutions in Hong Kong. It's now one of the world's foremost racing and sports wagering organizations. So just as an example, in 2002-2003, the betting turnover was $71 billion. So today, the organization contributes just under 12% of Hong Kong's tax revenue. Hmm. It also sits in the top 10 list of the world's most charitable organizations. Huh. All these unclaimed tickets. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So in addition to the Happy Valley Race Course, the Hong Kong Jockey Club operates Sha Tin Race Course. So I've been there. That's okay. where the 2008 Olympics were. I see. And they are also now involved in football lotteries and other gambling ventures. So when it was started in 1884, it was an amateur body to promote horse racing. And it was at that time an exclusive club. So it was for members of the British upper class. So women were not allowed. People of unsuitable backgrounds <laughs> were barred and Chinese were not allowed. So since the 1900s, Hong Kong Jockey Club has opened up to both women and Chinese members. Okay. Since 1911, you said? About 1900. Oh, yeah, early okay. 1900s. Okay. So, but... Way back when, you know, from the very, very early days, one thing that the Hong Kong Jockey Club always had done was given back to the community. And they made it formal in 1855 after the war. The city was rebuilding, the population was swelling, and the organization pledged to improve the quality of life in Hong Kong of Hong Kong citizens uh, in lots of different areas. So they focused on youth development, elderly services, sports and recreation, arts, culture, and heritage, education and training, medical and health, rehabilitation, family services, environmental protection, and emergency and poverty relief funds. It sounds kind of crazy. Not crazy, but like it's an exaggeration. But it's so true. Like having been there, you drive around Hong Kong, and it's like Hong Kong Jockey Club, University of Hong Kong. Like everything is Hong Kong Jockey Club. It's huge. And so this is a Maybe you might be able to answer this. So this was... A British-driven, mm-hmm. like a expat-driven yes. thing, but they were they were doing this for everyone. So it was for the entire population yes. of Hong Kong. Yeah. We're benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that's pretty. I mean, obviously, it's you know awful that they cut people, cut Chinese people out for so long. But to do it in 1900 actually seems pretty for- forward. It is very in terms forward of, thinking. Yeah, in terms of like how long you know. It's still obviously problems, but how long it took for like the United States or, mm-hmm. or even Canada to give the vote to women yeah. that they are they, they they open the doors to to Chinese members mm-hmm. and and I assume unsuitable members would have been people of mixed race. Yeah, mixed race or laborers, who knows? Yeah. 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 yeah that's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then they want the lower classes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, in nineteen fifty nine the Hong Kong Jockey Club Charities Limited was formed. And in 1993, a new entity, the Hong Kong Jockey Club Charities Trust, was created. So we kind of talked about like all that money rolling over. So basically, 90% of the club's annual operating surplus after tax is donated to the trust. Hmm. So Hong Kong Jockey Club Trust focus on projects that better the entire community of Hong Kong. So every decade since the 1950s they focused on a huge thing so in the 1950s they had a citywide drive for 
uh, building medical clinics all over. Yeah. 1960s, it was funding public swimming pools. 1970s, they funded sports and recreational facilities throughout the region. In addition to that, they've established uh, summer youth programs, Jockey Club College, Hong Kong Sports Institute, the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, the Hong Kong Museum, the Museum of Climate Change, the Center for Health Protection, the Hong Kong Palace Museum, so they pledged $3.5 billion for that, uh, the Center for Heritage and the Arts, and in 2021, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, they granted the club's single biggest, which is still undisclosed, donation to open a new Hong Kong medical center. Wow. Yeah. They do pour money into the city. It's, yeah, yeah. it's pretty obvious when you go there. So, in addition, they've created and fund the Hong Kong Jockey Club Music and Dance Fund. The Air Pollution Index was conceived of through the Hong Kong Jockey Club. <laughs> the Hong Kong Scholarship Scheme was launched. The Lifewide Learning Fund was established. The Community Project Grant Scheme was created. And the Initiative for Seniors was developed. As well, the organization has been recognized by the IOC for its significant role in Hong Kong's successful hosting of the equestrian portion of the 2008 Olympic Games because they could not hold the horse stuff in mainland China. Yeah. It's just because of import of horses and you couldn't get them out again, yeah. essentially. In September 2017, professional gambler Bill Benter met with a reporter from Bloomberg Businessweek magazine to explain that he was a person who had won the money. So he went on to explain how he had won the money and why he had put the winning ticket in a safe with no intention to ever claim the cash. Oh. Mm -hmm. So Benter, who at the time of the interview was 61 and living in Pittsburgh, also stated that back in 2001, he had sent an anonymous letter to the Hong Kong Jockey Club following his win to explain his intentions. But this information was never shared with the public by the Hong Kong Jockey Club due to privacy issues. Okay. Yeah, so they were apparently aware. So they knew about the ticket, mm -hmm. but they did not... They knew about the ticket. They knew that it was going to go unclaimed. Okay. Yeah, but they can't say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Bill Benter, I always want to call him Bentner. Ben Benter is a weird name. Yeah. Anyway, Bill Benter was born and raised in Pittsburgh. So he was an Eagle Scout growing up, mm. a good student. He studied physics in college. Uh, he left school in 1979 at age 22, boarded a Greyhound bus, and traveled to Vegas with the intention of playing cards professionally. Okay. So his inspiration was MIT professor Edward Thorpe's 1962 book, Beat the Dealer, which has been credited with inventing card counting. Yes. Okay. So Benter got a job at a local Vegas 7-Eleven. He was working for $3 an hour. So he used this money to start playing the budget casinos like the Western and El Cortez. So a year later, around the same time as he was applying for a job as a night cleaner at a McDonald's, he met an Australian called Alan Woods, who was the leader of a new card counting team. Okay. They had just arrived in town. Sure. So Woods, who was a former insurance actuary, had abandoned his wife and family and job in Australia for yeah. the life of an itinerant gambler. He ran a team, and together they pooled all their money, which was an idea that appealed to Benter. So he joined the squad. I see. So six weeks later, so Benter, who had been applying to, you know, basically support himself as a night cleaner at McDonald's, 
Six weeks after joining this squad, he was playing blackjack in Monte Carlo. <laughs> uh, by the end of the year, he was making 80 grand a year, so doing quite a bit better. That's pretty good. So there are car- card counters. Mm-hmm. That's funny. See, uh, uh, there's been a few people who've done this, yeah. even in modern times. Mm-hmm. Like, there's been like universities that have math yes. departments who have yeah. gone out and, and done this. And what's interesting is like, if, if you do it in Vegas, obviously they're not happy with you in many, you know, and they, and if they find out what you're doing it, they'll usually ban you from the, mm-hmm. from the casinos. Yeah. Monte Carlo is a different animal. Monte Carlo has his own police force mm-hmm. that enforce the law in the casinos as well as in the, the principality. And they don't like people car- counting cards there. And they'll actually physically beat, beat up card counters oh, okay. if they're discovered mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, eject them from the country right. or the principality. Uh, so that's kind of daring to be doing that in mm-hmm. Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. I wonder what their process was and how, how they were, went undetected. I guess there was enough of them. Yeah. If they, if they went as a big group. Mm-hmm. They could, uh, they could do that. So yeah, he's making eighty thousand dollars a year, which was yeah a good increase from what he had been making. The team rented a house in the suburbs of Vegas. Uh, Woods had some really strict rules about how they were to live. So uh, it was forbidden to do any drinking on the job, but he also really encouraged camaraderie within the house and everyone working together and getting along. The team was so successful, unfortunately for them, that it did not go unnoticed. And so (laughs) two years later, Benter was the guy who got picked up by... The, uh, the bouncers at Maxim. And so he was put in the Griffin book. So he was blacklisted from Vegas. And the whole team was also kicked out as well. Hmm. So Woods, being an Australian, was familiar with Hong Kong's racing scene. And so they use a paramutual or totalizer system where the odds are updated fluidly um, as the betters wage. So winners split the pool and the house takes a commission of about 17%. Meanwhile, uh, Benter calculated that in order to do well, he would they would need to make a profit margin of greater than 17%. There's a place in Vegas called the Gambler's Book Club, and you can go there and check out a bunch of different books. They have all these books that people have made, or written rather, about different gambling systems. Okay. Anyways, he went and bought everything he could on betting on the ponies, but unfortunately he soon realized that all of the systems being touted were just weak mathematically. Yeah. You know, it's like, would be my system. Like, I like the bay horse with a lot of chrome on it like white socks very pretty looking yeah yeah that would make a nice hunter um yeah no that's that's not gonna win you at the the racetrack so yeah he he left the gambler's book club disappointed after reading all the books um and then he went to the university of nevada at las vegas and started of course this is pretty uh, early computer days, of course. He found a paper called Searching for Positive Returns at the Track, a Multinomial Logic Model for Handicapping Horse Races. So it was by Ruth N. Bolton and Randall G. Chapman, who are two marketing researchers working out of the University of Alberta in Edmonton. So this paper showed that the success or failure of a horse in a race could be quantified probabilistically. Uh, So variables like straight line speed, wind record, jockey skill, and other factors provided a fairly accurate prediction of race outcome. And the more variables that were considered, the more precise the predictions. So the paper's authors were actually more interested in the actual statistical model than they were in making money from it. So they actually hadn't delved too deeply into it, but they stated that, you know, quote, there appears to be room for some optimism, end quote. (laughs) 
So Benter then proceeded to teach himself advanced statistics. Then he learned how to write software using an early PC. Then in the fall of 1984, Woods flew over to Hong Kong and sent Benter stacks of yearbooks that contained thousands of race results. So it took nine months and they hired two assistants to just basically do data entry. But by September 1985, Benter was flying to Hong Kong with three IBM computers in his checked luggage. <laughs> and they were apparently quite big and bulky. Yeah. Yeah. So being self-taught, he might not have known the name for it, but what he was doing was creating a program in what's known as stochastic programming. I'm probably saying that wrong. So what it is is a framework for modeling optimization problems that involve uncertainty. So real-world problems like horse racing invariably include unknown parameters. But when the parameters are known only within certain bounds, one approach to tackling such problem is called robust optimization. And the goal is to find a solution which is feasible for all such data and optimal in some sense. So this type of programming models take advantage of the fact that probability distributions governing the data are known or can be estimated. So the goal is to find some policy that's feasible for all or almost all of the probable data instances and maximizes the expectation of some function of the decisions and the random variables. So you talked about how some um, universities study it. And actually, there is a guy called Dr. William Ziemba, who is finance professor at UBC's Sauter School of Business. So he's a specialist in this area. Okay. So years later, he wrote extensively about this whole thing. Okay. And he actually, yeah, works in this field as well, making money, I guess, on the stock market. So I see. that's how he applies it. I see. Respectable gambling. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So racing in Hong Kong occurs twice a week on just two tracks, so Happy Valley and Sha Tin. So that kind of narrows the variables. You okay. know, it's a very controlled situation. Um, so what they would do is on race days, Woods and Benter would sit in front of their computers. They had all these computers and TVs <laughs> in their tiny apartment and would compare the actual results with what they had developed statistically. Um, so Woods, who by that time had been in Hong Kong for more than a year and also had some background in the racing scene there, also would be able to provide the odd correction when possible because, yeah, Bender was coming in cold. He was not a racehorse guy, didn't know anything about it, but Woods had a little bit of background. He'd go, oh, no, you know, try this or whatever. Yeah, he didn't know how important white socks were on the yeah, horse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so there's a statistical phenomenon called gambler's ruin, and that states that when a player with limited funds bets against a house with unlimited funds, like at a casino or racetrack, then he will eventually go broke. Okay. So Benter was familiar with the studies of a Texas physicist called John Kelly Jr., who in the 1950s had devised a circumvention of this problem. Okay. Yeah, with a scenario where the gambler has some insider information or reliable tips. So in this scenario, the gambler must wager in line with his or her confidence in the tips themselves. So good tip, put more money. Yeah. Yeah. So Benter recognized that Kelly's private tip scenario was very similar to what he had produced with his computer software. So both allowed the better a small edge, which involved less risk and the potential for a big profit. So additionally, the impact of a run of bad luck was much less significant. The reality, however, proved otherwise. 
After a year, the initial stake that the pair had of 150,000 U.S. was down to 30,000. Okay. So Woods went off to South Korea to gamble, came back with a big injection of cash, <laughs> but then he wanted to renegotiate the partnership. Okay. He asked for 90%. I see. Benter found this to be absolutely unacceptable. So both men refused to budge and the part partnership ended there. Oh. Yeah. So Benter then put in a line of code in the software he had written okay. that prevented Woods from using it. Oh. I know. So Woods huh. stayed in Hong Kong and continued to gamble on the horses. Benter returned to the U.S. and managed a team of card counters in, Atlant and in Atlantic City while he continued tinkering with his program. I see. 1988, Benter had raised a stake of $200,000 okay. and he returned to Hong Kong. So he found on his return that Woods had hired a team of programmers and mathematicians who had circumvented the issue he had placed in the original software. Okay. They had also fine-tuned his original code and it was now making Woods a lot of money. All right. So the two men were still very much enemies and they refused to speak to one another. Okay. So Benter spent the first year back in Hong Kong incorporating additional variables, such as what the horse had eaten for breakfast, wind speed, things like that, into yeah. his data. He actually traveled to England uh, to copy down an archive of Hong Kong weather patterns that he learned was stored there in huh. a university. Okay. Ultimately, it did not add anything positive to his data at all. One significant addition included the number of rest days since the last race for each horse, but... One of the most impactful was the incorporation of the Jockey Club's own publicly available betting odds into his program. But ultimately, the most important factor to a horse's success in a race was determined to be the number of races the horse had run in the past, with fewer races correlating with improved results. Okay. So basically, a nine-year-old with a lot of wear and tear is not going to yeah, yeah. be a good bet. Sure. Okay, so by the end of Benter's first year of working independently, he was up $600,000. And at that time, he was able to hire a full-time employee. Um, he also hired a staff of part-time programmers, mathematicians, and analysts. Then he also hired a group of individuals who he usually sourced from a pool of Filipino housekeepers. And their job was to just place as many bets as they could per minute uh, via the phone with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Okay. So the usual was about eight bets per minute is how many they could get in. By 1990, Benter was up $3 million. Wow. Then he got a call from the Hong Kong Jockey Club. <laughs> so fearing, thinking about back to his Vegas days, that he would be blacklisted, he was more than pleasantly surprised to learn that the Hong Kong Jockey Club appreciated his business and told him, you're one of our best customers. What can we do to help you? <laughs> well, he's like, what? <laughs> so... Since I guess because they're getting a cut of exactly, his winnings. Exactly, exactly. They're getting 17% of his yeah, winnings. Yeah, that's so. it. So, yeah, their incentive was to maximize betting activity in order to support their charities yeah. and the government. So, you know, it's the kind of a win-win for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Benter was able to ask for and then was granted the ability to place bets electronically rather than over the phone. So, the Hong Kong Jockey Club installed a customer input terminal that Venter was then able to plug directly into his computers, and this allowed him to increase his betting volume significantly. Wow. Yeah. So 
He had created something that had never before been seen, which is a quantitative horse racing hedge fund that used probabilistic modeling to beat the market. So Wood's operation at the same time was still using the base code Benter had written, and that was making him about $10 a year by 1994, which was enough to buy him a Rolls Royce that he never drove. But yeah, Benter's program was doing even better. Huh. So the success of both programs was impossible to hide and ultimately attracted many individuals who became employees. And these employees often moved quite fluidly between the two camps. I see. Um, There was a New Zealander called Bob Moore who contributed... he, he yeah, basically maniacally watched video footage of past races to find horses that would have been more successful but had been boxed in or bumped in previous races. So this knowledge of bad luck served as a form of adjustment that allowed the algorithm algorithms to be even more effective. <laughs> so by 1997, Benter was up $50 million and his team won a large triple trio jackpot. However, while the Hong Kong Jockey Club would typically put the winners of these large pots on TV, this time the Hong Kong Jockey Club was reluctant because it was in the year of the handover of Hong Kong to China and advertising that an American algorithm was winning such huge amounts of money maybe wasn't going to look so good. (laughs) So there was actually technically no law against what Benter was doing, but the Hong Kong Jockey Club did ultimately revoke his customer input terminal privileges. And on June 14th, Woods and Benter both had their Hong Kong Jockey Club accounts suspended. Hmm. So Benter returned to Vegas and read and reread the statement from the Hong Kong Jockey Club. So what he determined was that although he was not allowed to bet using the phone, live betting was still an option. So he created a system where he had printers that would produce betting slips. Uh, He set up teams that were literally across the road from betting shops and... Their job was just to get these betting slips out of the printer, run across the road, and stick as many into the machines as possible prior to the cutoff. And then they'd run back across the road and get the bets for the next race and repeat again. Okay. So the risk of robbery was high for the runners, but the new system was almost as profitable as the old one for Benter. Wow. Mm-hmm. So by this time, Benter had increased his model to include over 120 factors per horse but it was grueling, time-intensive, and labor-intensive. So meanwhile, uh, Woods had run afoul of the tax collectors and had had to flee to the Philippines, and he was living a Colonel Kurtz type of lifestyle. (laughs) He had just gone absolutely crazy, and he he had surrounded himself with women, and although he had had the no-drinking rule before, it was all like drugs, like crazy, and he, he sounded... Like he was, had mental health issues maybe as okay. well because he was he would do things like every so often he would like insist all the people working for him had to take IQ tests and then he'd yell at them about how he was smarter than them and like berate them and everything and yeah kind of wacky anyway meanwhile back in Hong Kong so Benter on the other hand joined the Rotary Club fully embraced its motto of service above self. He spent time visiting third world countries and donating funds anonymously to refugee camps and impoverished schools. So at this time in his life, he was rethinking his chosen occupation and lifestyle. (laughs) Then in November 2001, he placed that final bet on the triple trio. And again, he he actually was not like a $2 bet. He bet $1.6 million. Wow. Yeah, in order to beat the house and overcame yeah 51,000 combinations 
that particular night to get that winning ticket for 118 million. So, <laughs> but he made the decision to not cash it in so that the money could go to charity. Wow. Mm -hmm. So later that same year, Hong Kong Jockey Club officials lifted the betting ban on Benter, but he'd had enough. He returned to Pittsburgh. So things had changed in Hong Kong because his successes had encouraged others to form syndicates. So the Hong Kong Jockey Club's response was to publish reams of data on its website in an attempt to level the playing field. The odds board on both Happy Valley and Sha Tin are now color-coded to show big swings in the volume of wagers on a horse. I see. Yeah. Racing remains the number one game in town, unlike anywhere else in the world where horse racing is actually losing the public's interest. Hmm. Hong Kong Jockey Club provides vet and track work records, stable changes, and other info online for the benefit of bettors. Uh, bookmakers are not used at all because it's all tote betting. So, you know, like we've seen... Um, like movies of horse racing in Britain, right? And there's all the guys that stand down by the track and you crowd into them and you try and place bets with them. But oh, okay. yeah, that's not what they do in Hong Kong. It's more like what we do here. I see. So racing remains strong. Um, in February 2000, 2022, so this year, Hong Kong Jockey Club broke their turnover record with 1.86 billion worth of bets placed in one day at Sha Tin Racecourse. Holy cow. Yeah. Only key people were allowed on site uh, at at the tracks during COVID. So all betting was happening online and the races were broadcast online. In the 2020-21 racing season, in spite of COVID issues, they recorded record turnover. That was It was a rise of 27.9. They ended up with Hong Kong money 2 hundred and seventy nine point seven billion, which is same as thirty six billion US is what they made during the COVID year. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Crazy. The lady who wrote the paper that started it all, okay. Ruth Ann Bolton. Yes. And again she was from University of Alberta at that time. Yeah. So she co-wrote the paper. She went on to receive her PhD at Carnegie Mellon in the area of marketing. She's currently Emerita Professor of Marketing at the W.P. Kearney School of Business at Arizona State University, and she's been the recipient of many awards in her field. Um, <laughs> she has previously held academic positions at Vanderbilt University, University of Oklahoma, Harvard, University of Maryland, and University of Alberta. I wonder if she knew what her paper... Uh incited i think she may have but she did not follow up but the guy who wrote with her that yeah. randall chapman yeah so he co-wrote the paper he went on to get his phd as well he wrote a book called brand maps and then in 2008 he wrote a follow-up to their original paper which was entitled still searching for positive returns of the track <laughs> empirical results from 2000 hong kong races Currently, he runs a marketing consulting firm out of his Florida apartment. His firm shows sales of $98,449 annually, U.S. Hmm. I guess the study did not pay off. <laughs> okay, that's, so Robert not Moore. A bad, not a bad living, I guess. No, I guess not. Not but compared to the other guy. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, Robert Moore, who was the New Zealander who would watch the 
screens. So he helped both Benter and Woods improve their betting systems. He was also very financially successful himself. He would often wager up to $2 million a day personally. So he wasn't working like in a syndicate. Um, And he received an annual return of 38%. He also suffered, however from a number of significant personality and psychiatric disorders for which he refused treatment. In 1996, the Hong Kong Jockey Club barred him after he won $40 from a single horse race, and he committed suicide the following year. So Edward O. Thorpe, who is a guy that wrote the book Beat the Dealer, which is what made the guy go to uh, Vegas in the first place, and become a card counter. Yeah. He's still alive. He's in his 90s. Okay. Um, he received his PhD in math in 1958 from UCLA. Then he went to work at MIT, then New Mexico State, and then he was at UC, UC Irvine when he wrote the book. I see. And so he then went on to be a very successful hedge fund manager uh, in 1991. He was an early skeptic of Bernie Madoff's program. I see. Yes. So in two in 2021, he was ranked as the world's number two most successful gambler, specializing in blackjack, baccarat, and backgammon. And also hedge funds. Yes. Pretty much the same thing. So Alan Woods, so Benter's former partner, yeah. after running afoul of inland revenue and fleeing to the Philippines, um, where he lived in Manila, he eventually, yeah, continued at while he was in Manila to run his gambling empire remotely. Okay. But as I said before, it was a very difficult boss. He developed a drug habit and eventually succumbed to cancer in 2008 at age 62. So right at the end, he did return to Hong Kong. He went into a hospice and it was right across the road from Happy Valley and he was able to see it out his window. Okay. Immediately before his death, he contacted an Australian business magazine, Business Review Weekly, to ask for inclusion in their rich list. So he had wanted to wait until he could be number one, but yeah, he knew the end was near. So he just wanted to be in the top 10 or whatever. I see. And I think because he was living out of the country, they weren't really considering him and maybe because of the nature of how he was making his money. I don't know. Sure. But um, yeah, he did ask for inclusion. He had amassed a fortune of over 900 million Australian by that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he died, it was largely left to his two children from his first marriage. Almost 15 years now after his death, he is still ranked as one of the world's most successful gamblers. And he comes in at number three, specializing in blackjack and horse racing. Hmm. Well, yeah. Just three. Yeah. That's a... So, Bill Benter. He went on to form something called the Benter Foundation, which is a charitable organization that night in 2007. He's a visiting professor at the Southampton Management School as part of their Center for Risk Research. <laughs> He's a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. In 2012, he married Vivian Fung, who is a Hong Kong national he met through his involvement with the Hong Kong Rotary Club. The couple have a young son, Henry, and they live in Pittsburgh. Benter was a big contributor to Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, and he's been a significant contributor over the last 10 years to the Democratic Party. He attempted to share the wealth, so to speak, when he published an academic paper called Computer-Based Horse Race Handicapping and Wagering Systems, a report. (laughs) In 2021, Bill Benter was ranked as the world's number one most successful gambler. Wow. Yeah. Now we have to find out who number two is. Number two was Edward O. Thorpe. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And number three was Alan Woods. Yeah, wow. Yeah. All the people involved in yeah. this. Yeah. 
And I read actually somewhere else that he is still making a hundred million a year currently. Like through his gambling? Or? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so still, and he's tried to uh, apply a system to baseball in the United States okay. and was not able to do it. So many variables. I imagine it would be so hard to do. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what they said. Too many variables. I'm like, how many variables well, can you have? You have so many players. Okay. You have two teams. Okay. You know, then you have, well, this mm-hmm. so many things happening. Yeah, you know? I guess so. I guess, yeah. You know, it's yeah. A, there's human There's human error, and mm-hmm. then there's, you know, and, and human, you know, somebody having a, a spectacular game, you know, this, this so, there's just so many different pro- problems with that. I can see why that would be a, a, an issue for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I think most people out there in horse racing are in it to win it for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, people in most sports are in it to win it, but mm-hmm. you know, no matter what your intentions, the po- possibility of of errors, you know, because you know, there's like where you can throw the ball, who's gonna. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things. It'd be so hard to take into account all yeah. the all the calculations that you'd need. Hmm? Interesting though. Mm-hmm. I wonder if football would be easier. Probably not. No, I can't see how that would be any different. Same thing. You've got yeah. teams, lots of people. Lots of people, lots of moving parts. Yeah. Whereas in horse racing, you have a jockey and a horse. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. You know, and so if that horse is good and uh-huh. the jockey's competent, yeah. they're, they're going to get across the line, mm-hmm. you know, and they've got a proven track record that that's what you're relying on mm-hmm. within a certain given number of factors, whether that might be weather related, you know, there might be ones, ones that are better in the mud than in, uh, and others that are better in, uh, running and dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I guess Hong Kong has dirt tracks. It's mainly turf, Yeah, I think. Okay. And that was one of the things, like, he had gone and tried to apply it to U.S. tracks, and it said that was less successful because there's so many tracks, um, there's so many different type, sort of surfaces, mm-hmm. and... Yeah, even like the weather from sure. you know, one place to the other. Seattle yeah. weather is very different from Florida weather, yeah. et cetera. So, but Hong Kong was just this very unique thing because I think, two, you don't have as much variety in types of horses. Like having been there and seen it now, yeah. Yeah. like there's so much money in it. When, when I was there, they were saying that if a horse goes lame pulls up lame, can't run. It is so expensive to keep a horse there that it gets shipped out. Usually um, New Zealand, Australia, sometimes the US. And so then it'll go through all this very expensive, you know, medical rehab and everything like that. They make sure it's 100% sound before it gets sent back and then it can go back to the track. So you've got good quality horses. You've got very sound horses. There's no questionable horses out there running. I'd say the biggest questionable thing with the horses there is just dealing with the heat because, yeah, some horses develop issues, um, anhydrosis, which they lose the ability to sweat. And so then they can't control their core body temperature. But even compared to what we're used to, I would say, not just here, but the UK, Australia, New Zealand, anywhere, um, how they warm up for the track there is just so different. Like they've just got huge fans, which are, I would say like they're 10 or 12 foot high fans and they've got 20 of them right beside where the um, start box is. And they trot or they walk around. I don't, they don't even like here they go out and they trot down and then they canter around and then they turn around and they canter all the way back. And then they go in, they're very warmed up. Um, there, it seemed to be very little activity. They'd go and they'd stand the horses with their heads into these big fans, just blowing air into their, 
respiratory system and then they put them in the box and boom the race goes because <laughs> it's so so hot there yeah um so yeah they've just got to control the heat and yeah, yeah everything is very precise um, well that's it it sounds kind of hermetic unlike here where people you know in sports there's an appreciation of the snow game or the or the muddy the muddy game or the mud the mud track you mm-hmm. know where the horses had to race in the mud and, and yeah my mom always said through. oh that horse is a mudder he's strong right yeah, yeah. yeah so a horse that can win in the mud has got you know great sure. muscle mass and great strength yeah yeah like some of the in almost all sports there's like that except for hockey i guess which is you know played in a pretty controlled environment but traditionally like baseball and football were games played outdoors and so you had a weather element to it as well mm-hmm. you know and then tra- the track here as well for horses so i can see why the hong kong works so well for them that's really interesting mm-hmm. all right well thank you dear that was uh, fun mm-hmm. that was a fun story and uh and no one died <laughs> no one died <laughs> no one died and people got a lot of money yeah i guess that's good mm-hmm. happy ending just like <laughs> our first story <laughs> We did get some questions, or not questions, I should say. We did get some comments, or a com- well, a couple of comments. I thought I'd read those mm-hmm. uh, from our last episode, which was Follow the Money. Okay. Louise wrote to say, that was an interesting first segment of Horse Bits. How about a spin-off segment about mouth tack called Bit Bits? <laughs> After hearing about the evolutionary advantage of horses having large spleens, I wondered if any groups of humans have larger spleens as well. I did a search... And there is a nomadic fishing people in Southeast Asia called the the Bijo. She said pronounced Bijo, that's how I knew that. They spend a lot of time free diving in the ocean for food, and their spleens are 50% larger than those of their non-diving neighbors, which allows them to spend more time holding their breath while underwater. And I wonder about those pearl divers as well, or if that's, those are the same people mm-hmm. that would... Uh, maybe that. that makes me think maybe I've got a very small spleen. <laughs> is that right? Because <laughs> yeah. you can't hold your breath very long? No. I'd subtitled this episode, Rita Got Greedy. If she hadn't gotten so caught up in building fancy houses, acquiring land and horses, and going off on extended leaves to attend horse shows, her subordinate might not have stumbled across that bogus account when she looked into the town's bank statements. I feel sorry for the townsfolk whose tax money was stolen and who lost work because of her. A lot of the blame has to fall on the elected civic officials who failed to see that when it came to the town's finances, things were just not adding up. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Louise. We, we should hire you to write our, our introductions because mine are terrible. <laughs> and then we also had a little note from listener Trevor Lynn, who wrote to say, Great episode on Shergar. I had heard about the kidnapping at the time, but didn't know all the details. I remember hearing at the time the IRA had returned one of his legs with a note saying if they didn't receive the ransom money, he would never race again. But I'm not sure that one was true. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty much a guarantee. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's unlikely they would reattach the leg after they got the money, so I don't know. I would have to put that into the not true category. He says, can I mention my only horse claim to fame? I met Red Rum at a South of England show. I say met. We didn't actually shake hooves, but I did see him on a school trip in the 70s. Anyway, looking forward to the next episodes. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. Yeah, Red Rum won the Grand National, famously. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we had, did you know Bob Marshall? Yep. He, yeah, his dad was the farrier of Red Rum. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, wow. that was his big claim to fame, and I remember he used to come and talk to us 
for Pony Club every so often. He goes, you know, my dad was uh, the farrier for Red Rum. And all us little North American kids were like, who? <laughs> no one knew who Red Rum was. <laughs> Should have given more background. Yeah. Should have said, Red Rum, this horse won the Grand National, which yeah. is a horse race that involves jumping over a bunch of hedges. Mm-hmm. And my dad was the horse's farrier, which would have still gotten a, Ugh. Yeah. Anyway. Ancient history. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you everyone for writing in. Uh, we appreciate listeners' comments, and su- we've had some suggestions as well, and that's been very helpful. So, if you'd like to write in, remember our website is sneakydragon.com. There you will find our episodes, and you will find space there for your comments. Or, if you prefer, you could contact us via email at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. Or, like Trevor, you could write to us on Facebook. We're there. And also, you can, well, I guess you can go to Twitter if you want and write to sneaky underscore dragon if you want. And that's that's also a place that we can be contacted. So, uh, is this our last show? Yeah, of this, this is uh, episode eight, uh, first, last episode of season one. Last episode of season one. So, we're going to take a couple of months off. Is that the plan? I guess. It's up to you, dear. Whenever you want to come back. Next week? <laughs> a, next week is a, this is a week off season, and yeah. then we'll, no, we'll we'll leave Lisa time to uh, to collect some no, new episodes for us, and we'll be back in our own good time. I was thinking the fall. Okay, yeah, because we're busy, busy in the summer. So yes, we'll be back in the fall with another season of Horse Mysteries, and as horses like to say, nay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.